Thank you for checking out the messages number seventeen. We are a group of believers in Brother Virginia who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and Someone in this church last week told me I was mispronouncing Elisha's name the whole time, and he's wrong. His name is Parker, and he is no longer allowed in this building, so get out now. That's Elijah and Elisha. And God sent these two men to Israel during a very difficult time in the nation of Israel's history. Of course, this is the divided kingdom stage. There's a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, is being ruled by just hundred, just wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And right now, they are under the rule of probably the worst king they ever had in Ahab. He has brought in a lot of false gods. He's brought in a lot of false idols. He's allowed his wife Jezebel, who is from Sidon, uh, and brought the false gods with her to kill the prophets and priests of God, Jehovah, and put in these false gods and these false prophets. And so Israel's in a very difficult time, spiritually speaking. Most of the people, uh, it's not that they stopped believing in God but they started adopting all these other beliefs and religions, and they're not sure which God is the true God or which God is in, in control or which God does what. So there's a very monotheistic society. And we, we see that God uses Elijah uh, to bring to, 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 to bear once and for all a battle between the God of Israel, Jehovah, and these false gods that Ahab has allowed to come in, specifically the prophet of Baal. And so it culminates in a, a showdown in chapter 18 that we'll get to uh, probably next week. But he starts beginning to use Elijah. And to use Elijah, he has to do some things in his life. He has to teach him some lessons to prepare him for what he's going to do in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so one of the things that God was showing Elijah was that God does not use our strengths to do his will. And he doesn't need our strengths. As a matter of fact, when we have these areas in our life that we think we have strengths, they're actually weaknesses because we try to do it in our own ability, our own power, our own will, and we, we can't accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. So God is teaching us that God uses the weak, not the strong, to accomplish the will of God. And so to do that, God has to make us weak. God wants us to depend on him. And so to do that, he makes us weak. So if dependence on God is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. And that doesn't make sense to us. To us, weakness is never an advantage. Weakness is, is a weakness. It's a bad thing. It's something that we're supposed to overcome and, and, and get past us so we can make our weaknesses strengths. But when it comes to serving God and walking with God and trusting God, weakness is an advantage. And so to help us be dependent on him, God wants to make us weak or really show us how weak we really are. And the stories we said last week, we see these stories in Elijah, we see God doing this. And we see it, God doing it not just in the life of Elisha, but in the life of Israel. 
He, they, there, we said last week that there's a big picture and a small picture God's always doing. The big picture is what God is doing and what God is teaching Israel through Elijah and then what God is doing in the life of Elijah to strengthen him and encourage him. Uh, and so it's how God is preparing Elijah to be used by him. And so God was working to get Elijah to a place where he was totally and completely dependent on God, so he weakened him. He took away his strength to provide for himself, so that Elijah had to totally depend on God. We saw last week that God sent Elijah to Ahab and told him, said, until I say so, until God gives me the go-ahead, it's not going to rain in Israel until I say so. Now, this drought lasted three and a half years, and it was all on the say-so of Elijah. And so God had to show him, first of all, God was showing big pictures, showing Israel that Baal wasn't in control. Because remember, we said Baal was the, the false god of nature. He controlled the weather. And so when Elijah comes in and says, hey, it's not going to rain until my God says so, that proves to Israel once and for all that Baal's not in control. That Baal doesn't have the power they think he does, and so they need to stop trusting him and trust the one true God. But then he's also working in Elijah's life, because he tells Elijah, okay, after you've said this to Ahab, they're going to be mad. He's going to want to kill you. Not just him, but everyone who's now going to be starving and, and thirsting to death, and livestock's going to die. There's going to be a huge famine. There's going to be drought, economic downturn. It's going to be bad, not just for Ahab and, and Jezebel, but for the whole nation. So God sends Elijah from where he, his hometown to the brook Cherith. And he, he hides him there. He's protecting him there. But he's also providing for him. He's got the water from the brook to drink. He's got the ravens coming twice a day to bring him food. And so Elijah, he's got it pretty good. You know, he's, he's, he's sitting by a babbling brook waiting on birds to bring food. That, that sounds like a pretty good life to me. I mean, sure, he doesn't have anything, you know, he's not going out and earn a living, but you know what? He doesn't got to worry about people bothering him. He doesn't got to worry about people trying to hurt him. He doesn't got to worry about in-laws or anything. He's just like, hey, I'm going to sit in my hammock. I'm going to listen to the brook babble, and I'm going to wait for the birds to bring me lunch and dinner. It's going to be a great life. And then God stops the brook. And then God stops the birds. So God was working in Elisha to get him to a place where he was dependent on God so he weakened him. And that's, that's where Elisha w would have found his greatest strength in his weakness because that's where God worked through him. And that's what God is doing in our lives as well. No matter who you are this morning, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what you're facing or going through, if you are a child of God, God wants to use you to build his kingdom. God wants to use you to bring him glory, to declare his goodness to the world. And so to do that, for God to be able to use us, he's got to weaken us. He's got to get us to a place where we depend on him. And sometimes to do that, he has to break us. He has to get us to a place where we see our weaknesses and we see our need to depend on him Completely. So one thing that tells us is that when we suffer hurt, when we suffer pain, it's a divinely ordained event to teach us to depend on God, 
to show us that we are weak and we have to find our strength in him, not in ourselves. Because when we're weak, the power of God is able to flow through us and the world doesn't see us. They don't see our goodness, our, our strengths and our abilities. They see God's strengths, they see God's grace, and they see God's power, and he gets the glory. So this morning, as we're continuing this, this study, we're going to see how God continued to prepare Elijah for the epic battle that he was going to face on Mount Carmel. And the story we're looking at today, Elijah teaches, or God teaches Elijah some important truths about God. He teaches him what separates Jehovah from all other gods. What makes him different? What proves that he is the one true God? And what God shows Elijah about himself, it's going to answer a lot of a question that probably every single one of us have struggled with at some time in our faith journey. And the question's this. Why didn't God show up to help me when I needed him? Why didn't God show up to help my loved one when they needed him? Why didn't God change what was happening or fix what I was going through? If God's all-powerful, and God's all-knowing, and God's all-loving, why am I hurting? That's a question every believer at one time in their life has struggled with and will struggle with. Those questions, when we have those questions, we, become weak in our, we can become weak in our faith, and oftentimes we can lose our faith. Too many people have walked away from God have lost their faith because they didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't see the truths that God was trying to teach them in those difficult times. And when that happens, it's because they lose their faith. Not their, not their faith in God, but their faith in their idea of God. What they thought God should have done. So last week we saw how God declared war on this false god Baal by declaring a drought in the land and stopping the rain. And, you know, Baal, of course, supposedly include nature, but God declared through Elijah that it wasn't going to rain on the earth until God said so. And so then God hides him by the brook and he feeds him with the birds and everything's going good, and everything's going well. And, you know, God is teaching Elisha to depend on him only. Because we can see God in that situation. Yeah, the brook's there, and we understand God created the water, and God created the brook, and so the brook is there by God. But it's hard to really see that because it's not like God's bringing him a glass of water every time he's thirsty, but the brook's there provided by God. But the birds feeding him, that has to be of God. You know, birds don't... Has anyone ever had a bird bring you a ham sandwich? No. You ever had a bird bring you a turkey? I've had a bird made of a turkey sandwich. I've had a sandwich made of a bird before. But I've never had a bird bring me a sandwich. It just doesn't happen. And so that's obviously of God. And he was teaching Elijah how to depend on him instead of depending on himself. He is growing his faith for the battle that he's going to face on Mount Carmel. 
But then God goes further. He dries up the brook. He stops the, the food from coming. And then he tells Elijah what to do next. Look in your Bibles in 1 Kings 17, <coughs> starting in verse number 8. The Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to, and to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he, he tells Elijah, okay, I want you to get up, and now I've, I've dried up the water, I've stopped the birds. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up and, and go to a, a town in Zidon. Now remember, Zidon is the hometown, the home nation of Jezebel. They worship the same God she worships. They're Gentiles. They're opposed to God. They worship a false God. And now they hate Elijah because it's not raining because of him. So he's, he, he's a wanted, hunted man who is being told to go to this town controlled by the enemy where people worship the false God and they're going to take care of him. So he, he tells him to go there to have this widow provide for him. Now, the city of Zarephath that he's going, that he's told to go to from where he is, is at on the brook Cherith is a 50-mile walk. How many of y'all have ever tried to walk 50 miles? If you were able to walk 50 miles on completely flat terrain at three miles an hour without getting tired, without stopping to rest, without having to eat or go to the bathroom... If you were basically a robot walking at three miles an hour on flat terrain, it would take you 17 hours. Elijah's not a robot. It's not flat terrain. It's hilly, it's mountainous. He doesn't have the best hiking boots. He's got sandals. Plus, he's a wanted man, so he can't just openly walk through the countryside. He's got to hide and do stuff. So it could have taken him a couple weeks to get to where God wanted him to go through enemy territory. He's a wounded man going on foot through enemy territory. He has no food now. He has no water now. He has no job now. He is walking through enemy territory completely unprotected and exposed. It must have been pretty scary for him. But he makes it. God protects him. God obviously provided on the way. We don't know how, but he must have because he didn't die of dehydration or hunger. So God must have provided for him. But look at verse number 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. He's obviously thirsty. And as she was, as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. And she said, as, thy, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elisha said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste Neither shall, uh, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of, it, of Elisha. And she and he and her house did eat many days. 
And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elisha. So now God has, you know, God providing for Elisha through the brook and the birds was, was pretty impressive. But this is incredible. This is a miracle. God is showing Elijah. God is showing this widow. God is showing everyone that he has, has he, is able to infinitely supply our needs in any circumstances, even in a drought and even in enemy territory. Baal can't even take care of his own hometown, let alone the rest of the area. He can't bring the rain. He can't send them crops. He can't provide for them. But here's God providing for this widow woman, providing for her son, providing for Elisha through a miracle of them simply trusting God. You know, I'm amazed at this woman's faith. She is not a believer. Because look, when she tells Elijah, she goes, hey, the Lord, thy God, not my God. She goes, I don't believe in your God. I'm not, I don't worship him. He's your God. And I don't have it enough to take care of me and my son, let alone all of us. And Elijah says, that's a great, I understand. Go do what I said. And then he gives, him a, gives her a promise. Because my God has said, if you do this, then the oil's not going to fail and the flower's not going to run out until it rains on the earth. And she trusts him. She has the faith to say, okay. So she does what she says, and this God works this miracle through them. God could take care of Elisha and this widow and her son in a drought that he sent in a land that hates him. You know, so David said in Psalms 23 where he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. This is a great story. Shows the, the power of God, the, the, the majesty of God, the ability of God. And it could have ended there. And then we go to chapter 18, where we go to Mount Carmel. And Elijah's like, well, hey, God's provided for me for three and a half years now. He's going to take care of here. Now, look, what he had wasn't that great. Has anyone ever made bread out of just flour and oil? I did last night. It's not that great. It's, it's like, a, like a thick tortilla. You know, it's not very good. It's just kind of plain and bland. You know, if, once you cook when it's warm, it's pretty good. You know, you tear it up, especially if you've got some olive oil and basil and garlic. To, it's pretty good there. They didn't have all that. But when it's hot, it's pretty good. But when it cools down, it's like a, it's like a cracker. It's like what we eat for the Lord's Supper. It's very bland. It's very plain. They ate that for three and a half years. But hey, but they ate for three and a half years. So that's good. But he could have, we could have stopped the story right there, gone right to Mount Carmel, and Elijah would have had the faith that God was going to take care of him. But it doesn't. It gets worse. It actually gets a lot worse. Look at verse number 17. <clears throat> and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. That's... Hebrew way of saying he's dead. He got sick and he died. And she said unto Elisha, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of, the, out of her bosom and carried him into the loft 
where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought this evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child became into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down to the chamber, into the house, and delivered him into, unto his mother. And Elisha said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elisha, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. So, why did God allow this woman's son to get sick and die? She was obeying God. She was doing what he asked. She was providing for his prophet, waiting, you know, kind of hiding him out and, and providing for him and giving him food and shelter and a, a you know, place to sleep and a place to... She was doing what God wanted her to do. She was obeying God. So why did God allow this to happen? She was showing incredible faith. So why did God make Elisha go through what he did before he resurrected the boy? To me, that story at the end there, it gets a little weird. He's laying across the dead boy three times and praying to God. And it's just, why? why? God could have just raised the boy right away. God could have said, you know what, Elisha, you're right. Here, let me raise him. He was still gotten glory for that. This whole story just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. You know, God was doing something in this widow's life and in Elijah's wife, life. He was showing them powerful truths about himself. And in this story, we see three things about God that he was teaching this woman, Elijah, and us today. And these truths separate God from every other false god and false idols. So what is God trying to teach us about himself? Number one, God is the God of the outsider. Of all the places God could have sent Elisha to do these miracles and to provide for him and to provide for who he was with, God chose a pagan widow in an enemy city. You know, the first G sermon that Jesus ever preached was a sermon about this story. Was a, a sermon about what God was doing through Elisha. In Luke chapter 4, verse 25, the Bible says, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. So Jesus saying, look, you know, people in Israel were suffering too. There were a lot of Jewish widows who were suffering hard. There were a lot of children of God who were suffering during this time. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Serapath, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. The famine was affecting the whole area. The whole nation was suffering. There were thousands of Jewish widows in Israel that God could have sent Elisha to. He could have provided for his prophet and one of his children that was suffering, but he didn't do that. He sent Elisha, his prophet, his man, to a pagan widow woman in an area that worshipped Baal. You know, when Jesus taught this truth 
to the Pharisees, it made them so mad, they tried to kill him after his first sermon. Now look, I've preached some bad sermons before. I've said some things that upset people before, but no one after I started, after I finished preaching, tried to kill me. So he made them so mad, they're trying to kill him. God is the God of the outsider. Every other religion focuses on rewarding the insider, those that are the same, those that are doing what they're supposed to do. This woman, she was an outsider in every way possible. She's a Gentile. That makes her a racial outsider. She's a pagan that worships false gods. That makes her a religious outsider. She's a woman that makes her a gender outsider. Women were, were, were considered nothing in this time. She's a widow, which makes her an economic outsider. But none of that mattered to God. She's the one that God chose to show his grace, his glory, and his power. And we see this truth throughout the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. You know, during these times, genealogy said everything about you. Your genealogy was, was kind of how good you are and how important you are, and you wanted people to know the good things about because all those wonderful relatives you had in your past, you know, their blood was in you, and so since they were awesome, you were awesome. As a matter of fact, during this time, kings and rulers would erase people in their genealogy that weren't that great. You wish you could do that every once in a while. That cousin that's just like, eh, yeah, he's not part of my family. But someone who, who didn't meet the standard, someone who had huge sin in their life, they just erased them from their genealogy so they weren't connected to them. And you never included women. Because women were just a vessel to bring men to the world. Look, that's not, I'm not saying that. That's what the culture of the time believed. You never celebrated those that were filled with dysfunction and shame. But Jesus' genealogy celebrates them. In the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1, there are three women whose lives were tainted with sexual sin and scandal. You have Rahab the harlot. She's a prostitute. She's a Gentile. You have Ruth the Moabitess. She was, again, a Gentile a Mo from the tribe of Moab, which was just known for their sexual sin and sexual deviancy. And you have Bathsheba. She's, she's Jewish, at least, but she committed adultery with David. And they are celebrated. These women, they had sin, but they repented and they came to God. And they are in the same line of the Davids and the Abrahams and all those great men. They are the same line that lead to Jesus. You ever, ever wondered why? Why would God put these women who are famous for sin in the line leading to Jesus? So that we can see ourselves in the line leading from Jesus. So we can see if, if they're in the line of Christ if God accepted them and used them, then God could accept and use us. Sorry, my gird's acting up this week. <coughs> it's not the corona, I promise. <clears throat> no matter who you are or what you have done, there is room for you in the family of God. God accepts the outsider. You may feel like an outcast, but you're not. 
You may feel worthless, but you're not. Jesus has purchased you with his blood. To him, you are the most valuable thing in the universe. In every other religion, God only favors and rewards the insiders. He only loves and accepts those who keep the rules. But that's not how the one true God is. He goes after the outsiders. <coughs> Biblical Christianity is not about our ability to earn God's favor. It is about God giving us his love and grace because we could never earn it. It is the gift of God. God has always and will always go after the outsider. He, he did it with the woman by the well. His disciples wanted to go around Samaria or go through it real quickly, but Jesus says, no, 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 we got to go through there. I have an appointment to keep. He meets this woman at the well who, who no one else would go to. He goes to a woman who's been married five times and now she's living with her boyfriend. He goes to a woman who has been rejected by everyone and is so full of shame, she has to go to the well to get water when everyone else is gone because they'll, they'll pick on her and reject her and maybe even abuse her. So she, she's so rejected by everybody. She's got to go when no one else is around and Jesus goes to her. Being a Christian... It means that God came to you when you were an outsider. You didn't earn God's favor. You didn't earn God's salvation. God came to you because you didn't deserve it. He came to you an outsider. You know what that means for us as children of God? We're to be friends to outsiders. We're to be friends of those who everyone else's wife has written off. We're to be friends of those who, who aren't like us. I know it's easy to say, well, I'm going to keep my circle, you know, real close in the family of God. And th that's great. We need other believers to, to help us and to encourage us and to, to help us be discipled. But we need to have friends who aren't in here so we can show them the grace and the glory of God. How many unsaved people are on your prayer list that you're praying for God to help you use them, bring them to Christ? Here's a question. If God answered every single prayer you prayed last week, how many new people would be in the family of God? How many new believers would there be? How many new church members would there be? How many unsaved people have you engaged with to show them the love of Christ? How many unsaved people do you have on your list? You're like, I'm going to invite them to church. I'm going to invite them to lunch. I'm going to invite them to coffee. I'm going to, I'm going to get involved in their life, and I'm going to show them the grace of God. I'm going to show them the mercy of God. I'm going to show them the one true God working through my life so that they can see him and they can accept him as their Savior. You know why most of us don't do that? We don't, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying just take them to coffee and have a great time. Talk about God. Bring up the conversation. Talk about what God's doing in your life. You know why we don't do that? We want to seem like weirdos. We don't want to be strange. You know what? Elisha was a weirdo. He shows up at this town, finds some random woman. I know, I know she's not random, but to her she's random. 
says, hey, bring me some water and get me something to eat. She's like, well, all right, but I don't have anything to eat. I can't help you. I'm gonna, I got enough to make for me and my son. We're going to eat that. We're going to die. And he says, that sounds great, wonderful, but give me something first. He's, he's a weirdo. But he showed her Christ. But he did it, and she came to know God. She became a believer because a weirdo entered her life and showed her the grace and glory of God. Be a weirdo. Not super weird, all right? But be the person who God uses to show the glory of God to the unsaved world. God loves the outsider. God goes after the outsider and he wants to use us to bring them in. But here's the second truth. God is the God we don't always understand. This woman who obeyed God, she fed the prophet, she obeyed, she was being blessed by God, she was doing what she was asked, she has a tragedy come to her. Her son dies. And like a lot of us, when tragedy hits, she didn't know why God let this happen. She even goes to Elisha and says, why did God do this? Was, was it because of my past sins? Was it because of something I've done? And Elisha, the prophet, the theologian, the Bible college graduate, he says the exact same thing I say in times of tragedy when people ask me, why did this happen? I don't know. I don't know. I can't explain it either. So he takes the boy up to the to his room, and he even goes to God and says, God, why'd you do this? Doesn't make sense. She was doing what you asked. She was taking care of me, and you, you take her son. Doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? The widow was hurt and confused. The Elisha, he's confused. But none of them, neither one of them, blame God. What the, the widow, she says, you know, she acknowledges her sin. He goes, I've sinned, and so I guess my sins come back to, to rest upon me. And Elisha, he doesn't try to give her an easy answer or tell her, say, well, I know you've been obeying God, but this is God's, if you trust God now, all your problems will go away and you'll never have pain anymore. He doesn't give her some, some false hope. They go to God asking for help and mercy. The true God is a God that does things sometimes that we can't understand, that we can't explain. He gives us rules and instructions that we don't understand or don't like. The true God is a God that we don't and we never will this side of heaven understand because he's God. If that's not your experience with God, chances are it's because you don't really know the one true God. You have your idea of God. A God that always lives up to your expectations is a God that lives in your imagination. We know God is the one true God because we, we can't always understand him. And we have so many unanswered questions. You know, if I, if I invented God, 
He'd always, he'd always help those who, who are good and righteous. He'd always help those people who I loved. UVA would always win the national championship in every sport ever. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because I don't understand. He should. But he would, if I invented God, he'd reward the righteous and take care of everyone I loved and thought was deserving. But here we see a God that acts in a way that makes his prophet say, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. And that's faith. Faith isn't getting mad at God. Faith isn't turning God into a genie that does everything right and that only helps those who do everything right and expect him to reward you. True faith is coming to God with humility and submission and unanswered questions, but knowing God is in control and God, no matter what we're facing, is full of compassion. It's knowing that God cares. It's knowing that God can and wants to heal. It is knowing that he is good and full of love and being humble enough to trust him and serve him and love him, even if it doesn't seem like it at the time. God is the God we don't always understand. Third thing we see about God, God is the God that has power over death. The one thing Baal couldn't affect was death. The one true God has power over death and the grave. See, God is showing Elisha, God is showing Israel that he has the power to do that something that no other God can do, raise the dead. You know, after Jesus' sermon in Luke 4, he leaves after they try to kill him. He leaves and he goes to raise the son of a widow. No other God has ever gone to the grave to conquer it. But I want to think about how confusing this must have all been for the widow. Elijah shows up and she, she knows he's the prophet of God. She acknowledges that, but instead of meeting her needs, instead of, you know, when the prophet shows up, most people think, hey, when the, when the preacher shows up or the prophet of God shows up, they're here to meet my need. But Elijah didn't meet her need. Instead, he said, meet my need first. Do what I need first. So instead of meeting her need, he asks her to do something that doesn't make sense, but she does it, and she learns to trust God. And every day, we don't know for how long, but every day, she'd get up, she'd make them one of those widow bread loaves that are good, hot, but not so great throughout the day. She'd make some of that bread, they'd eat breakfast, they'd eat lunch, they'd eat it. Same thing, but every day she got up and that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil was always there. And she learned to trust God. She learned to rely on God. That her son dies. God had a bigger plan in mind than just meeting her physical needs. Because he knows her greatest need is not to be fed every day. Her greatest need was to come to know him and trust him. God has a bigger plan for your life than what you think. He wants you to know him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to bring glory to him. And sometimes he brings death to us, whether it's people or dreams or plans or health, to show us that he is bigger than our problems, he is bigger than our dreams, and he has power over death. 
Now, the final scene in this story, again, it's a little odd. Elijah takes the boy up to his room. He lays him on the bed. And he, he, lays, he lays face down over him. He's face to face with this dead boy. Spreads him, his body out over so his, his arms are spread out on the boy. So, it's, I mean, everything he's got, his hands are touching him, his face is touching him. He's face to face with this dead boy. And he does it three times, asking God to raise him up. This was God was symbolizing Elisha taking death to himself so that the boy could live. This was a picture of salvation. God brings salvation to the world by dying in, his, in our place, by stretching himself out and absorbing our sin and absorbing our death onto himself. And he proved he was God by conquering death and raising from the grave once and for all. God saves us through death and God saves us from death. No other God can do that because he is the only God. You know, our world <coughs> has a lot of questions about God. Mainly, which God is the one true God? You know, too many people today in our culture think that they're all alike. All gods are the same, we just worship Him differently. God teaches Elisha. God teaches Israel and God teaches us some truths about Him, the one true God. Our God is a God that brings in the outsider. He goes after those that no one else thinks are worthy. God is the God that is not understood by us, but He's the God that saves from death and by death. You know, all other gods are, 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 are false gods. They're all opposite. They only bring in those that conform. They only bring in the outsider. They cannot save from death, and they cannot save at all. The true God... He meets us in our weaknesses, and He saves us. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace. Our church is growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in or would like more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit us online at reachingroanoke.com. Thanks so much for listening, and have a blessed day.